Well, good morning to all of you. It is such a joy for me to come and to be able to share with you here at Hyde Park. For the last year, we've been a part of the life of this congregation, and it is such a privilege to have this as our worshiping community. I grew up in this neighborhood. I went to Wilson Junior High and Plant High School. I played tennis on the tennis courts throughout South Tampa and on Davis Island, and in my running years, my favorite place to run of all places was on Bayshore Boulevard. My dad had an office supply company just down the block, just down Platt Street, across the bridge on the corner of Franklin and Platt, and I have for years admired this church and its leaders, its pastors. Lloyd Knox, who was a pastor here many years ago, was like a mentor to me over the years, and Vicki Walker and Jim Parnish have been highly esteemed colleagues, but also dear friends. It's a joy for me to come today and to break open the Word of God with all of you. Today we are turning to a, another in the series of this Faith at the Movies. I don't know about you, but I have loved this series. I think maybe it's that opportunity to really look at the deeper spiritual meanings in these great stories up on the silver screen. We've been doing that while also lifting up the core values of this particular congregation. If you want to know what those core values are, look at the flyleaf in your bulletin, and on the uh, far right bottom side there, you'll see our values. And today we're dealing with the last two of those values, which is mission direction and connectionally committed. And we are using the 2009 movie Invictus to help guide our conversation for today. United Methodists are a connectional people. We're different than our sisters and brothers who are a part of the Southern Baptist Church, who are congregationally organized. We are connectionally committed people in part because we relate to our district and we relate to the conference and we relate to the general church. We acknowledge that our witness for Christ is not made in isolation, but that we are vitally connected to the mission of God throughout the world through our connection in other parts of our church. We, we know that when the global church is engaged in the mission of God in the world, that we're vitally connected to that. The movie Invictus came to theaters in 2009. It was directed by Clint Eastwood, of all people. Uh, starring in the movie were Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon, both of whom were nominated for Academy Awards. The setting for this movie is South Africa. Now, that's particularly important for us here at Hyde Park because in just a little more than a month, uh, the interim pastor, Reverend Roger Stoltz, arrived from South Africa, a minister in the Methodist Church of Southern Africa, to help bring spiritual leadership to this congregation over the next year. And so it's important for us, uh, and we intentionally chose this movie as a way to help orient us just a little bit more to the history of that country. The year was 1990. It was February when Nelson Mandela was finally released from prison. In April of 1994, Nelson Mandela is elected president. And at the moment that he is elected president, there are a lot of questions that are going on in the country. What kind of a president would he be? He was South Africa's first black 
lawyer, but he had spent 27 years in prison. So what were going to be his values after decades of racial repression against black South Africans? Would his presidency end up being a time of racial retribution against the white overlords that had oppressed them for so long? People wondered. They were curious about what the years of his leadership would be like. In the movie Invictus, there is a a scene that begins to give us a clue as to the type of leader that Mandela was. It's the morning after his inauguration, and he is out for a walk with his security forces. Take a look. says he can win an election, but can he run a country? Not even one day on the job and they're after you. It's a legitimate question. He can win an election, but can he run a country? Mandela quips to his security guards who are protesting that they're already criticizing him. No, it's a legitimate question. Through this movie, you begin to get a window in to the man Mandela and his values and the things that he cares about. He was raised as a Methodist, and Mandela exhibits the values of God's mission in the world. On his first day in office, he asks to meet with all of his staff. And when he does, they wonder whether they will still have a job. Set his face to a firing at himself. I'd like you to say I did, but not even I cannot promise it. I'm hiding behind him with blood. Goimara, Alma. Good morning. How are you this morning? It's good to see you. Thank you for coming on such short notice. Some of you may know who I am. I could not help noticing the empty offices as I came to work this morning and all of the packing boxes. Now, of course, if you want to leave, that is your right. And if you feel in your heart that you cannot work with your new government, then it is better that you do leave right away. But if you are packing up because you fear that uh, your language or the color of your skin or who you worked for before disqualifies you from working here. I am here to tell you, have no such fear. What is the bay is the bay. The past is the past. 
We look to the future now. We need your help. We want your help. If you would like to stay, you would be doing your country a great service. All I ask is that you do your work to the best of your abilities and with good heart. I promise to do the same. If we can manage that, our country will be a shining light in the world. The dividing walls of hostility between the races in South Africa had been creating immense tension. So the question really that many were asking was, is there any way to break down the dividing walls of hostility between the people? Part of being called to God's mission is breaking down the dividing walls that separate us from one another. Being mission-directed, as a congregation, we use this word mission intentionally. Mission comes from the Latin word missio, which means to send. To be mission-directed is to realize that God is sending us into the world to be the hands and feet of Christ. We are to proclaim the salvation that Christ offers to the world. We are sent to make disciples, to alleviate suffering, and to stand up for God's justice in the world. Besides the missional work of inviting other people to faith in Jesus Christ, and besides the missional work of mercy and compassion in the world, there is also a justice component to God's mission. The justice element burst forth, burst forth from the pages of the Bible as God's care for the well-being of all creation. You can pick it up the prophetic passion for justice in the opening chapter of Isaiah where the prophet is poking fun at the people of Israel. It's really tongue-in-cheek. He's kind of making fun of them because of their over-interest in worship. Listen to what he says. Stop your sacrifices. <laughs> I have had enough of your burnt offerings of lamb. I do not delight in the blood of your bulls. I can't stomach your solemn assemblies. Your offerings make me sick. <laughs> but then he contrasts that in the first chapter of Isaiah by saying, if you want to worship me, if you want to be my people, then wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, in the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this theme of social justice when he gives a blistering slapdown to the religious elite of his day. 
Now, I work in the conference office, and, and so I love this part the most. <laughs> this is, listen to what he says in Luke 11. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kind and neglect justice and neglect the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced while not neglecting the others. The Apostle Paul picks up on this justice theme in, his, in the scripture from Ephesians that we're using today. He talks about uh, the walls of hatred between the Jews and, and, the, and the Gentiles, but what he is referencing are the walls of division that challenge us all. These walls can be huge, walls of custom and culture, walls of race and ethnicity, walls of religion, walls built on centuries of hatred and hostility. Look at the war going on right this minute between Israel and Hamas that is literally being fought across a wall that separates Israel from the Gaza Strip. Or look at the North and South Korea, who now for decades have been separated by a 155-mile demilitarized zone that separates North and South Koreans from one another. The most eloquent spokesperson for a broad, open theology of God's inclusive love is none other than the man who began his journey at the opposite end of the theological spectrum, the Apostle Paul. Paul, you see, was an expert in religious exclusivism. But then, after he had a conversion on a Damascus road, he began a journey, a theological journey from narrow exclusivism to a broad, open, grace-filled theology of the cross, which finally concluded amazingly that God's purpose in Jesus Christ is as big as the whole world itself. God sent Jesus not just to save a few fortunate ones who happened to be lucky enough to hear the news and believe it, but to heal and restore and redeem all creation. By the time of his death, Paul was writing things like our scripture for today, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. There is an amazing scene in the movie Invictus where you can see how it was that Mandela was breaking down the dividing wall between the races in South Africa. It is a masterful moment. Because into the security offices have come some former white security officers who were part of the SAS that uh, guarded de Klerk. Uh, they were the uh, part of the security unit that was, that was a part of the most brutal and violent elements of the apartheid repression. When the head of security asked, what are you all doing here? He produces a letter an order that had been signed by none other than Mandela himself inviting these men onto his security detail. Jason is furious. 
and he bursts into Mandela's office wanting an explanation. You look agitated, Peter. Well, that's because we have four special branch cops in my office. Oh, what did you do? Nothing. But they say they are the presidential bodyguards and they have orders signed by me. Ah, yes, ah, yes. Well, uh, these men are special trained by SAS. They have lots of experience. They protected the clerks. Yes, sir, but it doesn't mean that they have to come. You asked for more men, didn't you? Yes, sir, I asked... Um, when people see me in public, they see my bodyguard. You represent me directly. The Rainbow Nation starts here. Reconciliation starts here. Reconciliation, sir? Yes, reconciliation, Jacob. Comrade President, not long ago, these guys tried to kill him. Maybe even these four guys in my office tried and often succeeded. Yes, I know. Forgiveness starts here, too. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. Please, Peter. Sorry. Sorry to disturb you, sir. Forgiveness liberates the soul. Forgiveness is a part of breaking down the walls of hostility between people. The magnanimity of Nelson Mandela was exhibited most by his forgiveness of those who had harmed him and those who had harmed his people. Into this backdrop of a new administration, a new regime change in South Africa, comes the story of the 1995 Rugby World Cup. Now, for those of you who are not big rugby sports fans, I didn't know a lot about rugby before I started getting ready for this sermon. Let me just tell you that rugby is an English sport, and it's in that family of football games. Uh, a little bit like soccer, no helmet or padding is used. A little bit like American football, there are goal lines and there are goal posts. Now, rugby... Uh, South Africa, because of apartheid, had not been allowed to compete in the World Cup, but because apartheid had ended, finally they were allowed to participate, and in 1995, they got the privilege of hosting the World Cup. The Springboks were the South Africa rugby team, but one of the things people noticed was that whenever the Springboks would play, all of the black South Africans would root for whoever was playing against them. A little bit like the Gators tend to root for anybody playing the Seminoles. Uh, it, it is in this moment that Mandela sees an opportunity to use the World Cup as a way to introduce the world to the new South Africa. The Springboks are not doing very well. Their coach has been fired and Mandela invites the captain of the team, Francois Pinar, if he will come and have tea with him. And while they're having tea, they begin to share ideas together on how you motivate a team to dig down deep into their inner resources and find the will to rise above adversity. Mandela, in this meeting, asked Pinar if 
by chance he has ever shared poetry with the members of his team. Well, not exactly, Pinar responds, but I have shared, uh, I, I've shared music with them, and we focus on the words as we're riding to the stadium. Later in the movie, Mandela sends to the captain of the team a poem entitled Invictus, a poem by William Ernest Henley. There's a powerful scene in the movie after uh, the Springboks have defeated Australia in the opening game of the World Cup. It's the morning after their surprising win when all the members of the Springboks get on a ferry and they travel out to Robben Island. And while they're out at Robben Island, they go into Mandela's prison cell and they go out to the rock quarry. And all the while that the captain of the team is in the cell and at the rock quarry, he is in his mind reciting the words of the poem Invictus and imagining the years of imprisonment and the grueling work of the prisoners on this isolated island. Listen to the words of the first verse of this poem. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And the concluding verse reads, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. The team, the Springboks, had not been particularly good leading up to the World Cup, but they found that things had changed. For now, all of South Africa, both white and black, were cheering for the home team, for the Springboks, and they were making their way through the preliminary games of the World Cup and found themselves in the finals playing against New Zealand. At the end of regulation time in that final game of the World Cup, the score was tied 9-9. Nine to nine. And in the first few overtime minutes, each team scores one time, making the score tied again at 12-12. Twelve to 12. And in the closing minutes of overtime, take a look at what happened. There's a powerful moment right after the victory with South Africa winning the World Cup when 
Nelson Mandela walks out onto the field to present the trophy to his friend, Francois. And he is wearing a Springbok jersey with Francois' number on the back. And he is wearing a Springbok hat. And he presents the trophy to the captain of the team. And Francois steps to the microphone and says, I accept this award not just on behalf of the 60,000 fans in the stadium, stadium, but on behalf of the 43 million South Africans. And a cheer rises up. As we explore the call of Christ's unifying love to break down the dividing walls of hostility, and with the current struggles going on in the Middle East, I remembered a story by Michael Lindvall in his book, The Christian Life, The Geography of God, in which he talks about the 1983 Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, it, it is the story about a pastor whose name was Fuad Banan, an Arab Christian pastor in Beirut. And there were fears that Israel was about to invade Lebanon, and so members of his congregation worried about that, went out into the grocery stores to buy up as much food as they could just in case there was an invasion and they were cut off from being able to get out of their homes. It turned out that indeed Israeli did invade in 1983, and the congregation that this pastor uh, led came together. There were two proposals on the table about how to distribute the food. One was that they would give it first to the members of the church and then to other Christians, and then if there was any left over, they would give that food to, the, to their Muslim neighbors. There was a second proposal that was also on the table. That proposal was that they would give it first to their Muslim neighbors and then to other Christians. And then if there was any left over to members of the church, it was an intense six-hour meeting when finally an elderly woman leader in this congregation stood up. And she said, if we do not demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ in this place, who will? Who will? And the second proposal passed unanimously and the walls of division were lowered just a bit in that community. The God Jesus taught about doesn't seem to know about boundaries and walls, doesn't seem to exclude anyone from his love and acceptance and grace. Sinners, cheaters, prostitutes, children, women, unclean, adulterers, all the ones who live their lives on the other side of the walls of exclusivism find their presence right there with God. They find a seat right there at God's table. So friends, I ask you this. If we, right now, in this community, are not going to offer the love of Christ in this place, who will?
name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.